You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is John Duncan. Hello, John. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. We're all very big fans. Uh, you know, we've discussed Dark Market Thank Broadcast you. on a, a previous episode, and uh, I've had the pleasure of seeing you live and seeing some of your artworks in person uh, a couple of times. I think we've really just been digging into your your history and all of the things you've been a part of. And I guess we can start at the uh, at the beginning, right? Los Angeles in the seventies. Okay. So. Your earliest performances were in starting in the the sort of mid seventies. Yeah, uh, 75, 76, 76 was when I did Scare and the bus ride. That's awesome! I'm so amazed. You were a bus driver in Hollywood. I was a bus driver all over the city. The part that has sort of stayed with me was the time when I was driving. From 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. on a line that the northern the northern end was the county jail, and the southern end was 179th and Broadway. Wow, that is quite a route. All night, every night, for uh, just over a year. When yeah. you mentioned bus ride, and another uh, of your pieces, obviously bus ride taking place on one of these buses that you were driving. But another piece of yours also comes from your time as a bus driver, which is Happy Homes. Yes, yes. And that period of time was the time that I saw things that, uh, yeah, they're still with me. it, uh, It gave me PTSD, and I still am dealing with that. So what, what was it about being a bus driver and specifically those times that, that stuck with you and how do you think it informed your art around then and since then? Wow. Uh, In a number of ways. Uh, It was basically going to school. It, It showed an uh, entire world that that I'd I had never witnessed, I never knew existed, and and had had seen images of, but never imagined that it was anything like what I actually saw. And what, it, what were some of those things? Kids being uh, really seriously abused, people very very desperate. I was, because I was wearing a uniform and working for the city, I was this sort of symbol of the system that was set up against them. And I was just as a human being sitting there, I was, I was the sort of scapegoat that they could get to, that, that you could see in front of you. I mean, yeah, anyway. Uh, all kinds of things, people shooting each other, people pulling all kinds of weapons on me every night, threatening to kill me. But the thing that stayed with me was seeing these, seeing these kids, little kids, really, really tiny kids, like 
babies treated in ways that I never imagined a human being could treat another being. It was just, uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? The bus driving? Six years. Oh, wow. wow that's a long time. Wow. So that's a lot of time to be in that and be an observer because you probably felt you couldn't do anything. I, I tried. You tried. Mm -hmm. I tried a couple of times. I tried and I sort of, the, the threat, the person who was really drunk and upset with me couldn't do anything to attack me because I was in traffic driving me when I was driving. Um, it would have, um, it would have screwed him up. It would have right. screwed everybody else up too. So you know, it was just not in his best interest to attack me at that moment, but that's how I got out of it. But that's such a wild slice of humanity that you experienced. I mean, you know, we all have it when we're in the city and you pass, you know, certain scenes, but you really had it quite boiled down and, and confrontationally present in your life. It was very informative. I'll put it that way. It was very informative to actually see for myself what was going on. And, yeah. Did these experiences make you more compassionate or more detached or nihilistic, do you think? It's something I'm actually still working on. It, it, I hear little kids, like babies, start to scream, and I just have to get out of the way from it. That's just one of these things that, I, that I'm sort of, I've been working on ever since. You mentioned driving overnight as well. And a lot of your performances and pieces have, have taken place at night. Things like scare every woman maze, uh, CV massage, and also in darkness, which I think we'll talk about a piece that I participated in, uh, 22 years ago. Uh, which is voice contact. contact. So what is it about night and darkness? I mean, even right now when we're talking to you, you know, we're, we're in drastically different time zones and it's uh, coming up on midnight where you are. And when I asked if you wanted to change the time, you said that this was fine. So what, what is it about night that speaks to you? Night is the time that I've always worked it, since I was a teenager. I've always been at my best starting around 10 o'clock at night and going until Easily at three, four, five o'clock in the morning. A lot of these situations and performances that you have done is about putting people in situations which make them question, uh, I guess, their their safety, their sanity, how they react, their instincts. What is it about that that drives you to put people in those places? Well, the first thing is that <clears throat> participants in these events are always given a choice. Except the, the first time they, they weren't given a choice. That was, uh, uh, what was that called? Um, maze. Yeah. That, in that one, people were told that the event would start once they entered a room nude, and then I entered the room nude and asked the guy who was responsible for the building to lock the door behind us and come back the following morning. We all stayed in complete darkness there. But learning from that, um, everything I've done since then is to put it, uh, 
put the situation as a choice for people to make, if, if for a participant to make. If someone chooses to participate, then the event sort of unfolds, expands, develops. If they don't choose to participate, then that refusal is what they take back from them, and that's and that's all. That's what they get. So it's important that this element of choice is a part of the. Well, you said the first being Maze, which is 1995, but I would consider maybe Scare and Bus Ride to be earlier examples of putting people in compromising situations and <laughs> not having a choice. Yeah, true. Certainly after Maze, I, I decided this isn't fair. People should have a choice. It's more interesting, actually, if people have a if mm-hmm. people have a choice. In the defense of bus ride and scare, it wasn't possible to make those events uh, function in the as a sort of a situation to see what would happen. Right. It wasn't really possible to give people a choice in those in those situations it was more it was the whole thing was to sort of spring something on people and see what the results are in the case of bus ride i was really influenced by wilhelm reich and it was and this was sort of a test to see if what i was reading in his book called the mass psychology of fascism if it it, if, it, if it actually made sense in, uh, in situ. Your performance, Kick, was also uh, Reich-inspired, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what, what about uh, Wilhelm Reich's work has influenced your pieces, and which of your pieces are, are directly descended from that? Well, the idea that authoritarian impulses come from repressed sexual behavior. You live in Los Angeles, you know what it is to feel repressed sexual behavior. Every time you get in your car, you go and see these billboards that are all about, um, if they're still there, I don't know. When I was, when I was there, I saw these billboards all the time that were telling me have a tan, have a, um, or, or have someone who looks like that. But I'm in this bubble, which is the car. I'm in this sort of closed off, hermetically sealed, uh, I don't know, I'm like an encasement, I guess. And I'm being stimulated to buy these things by these, uh, by these like impossible sexual come-ons between those two things was really came to epitomize LA for me, and that the kind of behaviors that Reich described in his writings and how he was dealing with overcoming them, with breaking them down. I just found this really fascinating and I, and I found it really important to explore this because the situation that was created around me as a daily routine just seemed so repressive 
torturous, really. And uh, and exploring that was really being sort of uh, discouraged at best. So I thought even, um, especially for that reason, it was more important to actually go into it, explore it, than to accept this stimulus all the time. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. It does, and the stimulus is, is still here. There's too much money to be made by, by keeping that going, so of course it's still going. With something like Scare, and you know, we're talking about these performances, maybe assuming that people listening know what we're talking about and what happened with these performances. Obviously, there's a lot of information about all these performances to look up, so if we gloss over exactly the intricate details of them, please go look up on, on John Duggan's website. There's, there's a lot of information John on Duncan. that. org. You so much it. information. You got it. Love it. <laughs> but with scare, the, the idea was you, you had this mask and you went to a couple of people's houses with a gun loaded with blanks at night, knocked on the door and fired the gun at them. Is that a, a you know, to some people that, that you knew quickly. very well. Yes. And, and the, yeah, Tom Rashawn's one of them, right? <laughs> okay. Here comes the story on that. <laughs> A friend and I were walking on the street in Venice one evening and we were attacked on the street by a group of kids that just got out of a car and and there were three. Two of them approached us and uh, one of them kept nudging the other one saying, give me the gun, give me the gun. So when I thought when they when they came up to us, I thought that they had a gun and they had a gun and it's. In L.A., as you know very well, it's easy to imagine that somebody has a gun. When some um, guns are very common there. The third guy who was in this in this car circled around behind us and hit me over the back of the head with a with a stick that broke. And when this stick broke right at my ear I thought that I'd been shot in the neck for a split second and I put my hand on my neck and when you're it's a it's a, a jujitsu move also when you're hit in the back of your neck you lose control of your body for a split second and you fall so that's what happened that I put my hand on my neck and I and I fell to the ground and then I pulled my hand away from my neck and realized that there was no blood, that I hadn't been shot in the neck. So from a split second of cold terror to another split second in a split second of hot anger, I went from one to the other, just, just like this. And that moment of going from one extreme emotional moment to another, I thought this is this experience is art. This is, and this is a, a, it's, it's, it's art and how to make this into an experience as art for people who haven't, haven't had this happen to them. It's an existential issue. And that for me has always been what flooring existential situations. So how to give this experience to people 
first I thought about uh, uh, doing something in front of an audience, but I very soon realized that wouldn't work. So I, I thought I have to give this to individuals one at a time, but in order to do that, I have to be really careful about who it is I'm working with, because if I do this for somebody who is already uh, like on the edge of being really stressed out by experiences like this, it would not, it wouldn't give the the kind of experience that I was looking for. It would be it would be adding to some sort of trauma they already have. So I had to choose people that I knew really, really well. So I chose two people. To, you're right. Tom was part of them. Tom was one of them. Paul McCarthy was the other. Oh, I guess I don't think I realized he was the other. Yeah. Uh, and I went to their houses, uh, knocked on the door without saying anything. And I was wearing a mask to hide my own face so that when they opened the door, they would see a face they didn't recognize. That it was a mask was also okay, but it was somebody that they, but they didn't know. They, they couldn't recognize. Somebody just out of nowhere comes, shoots them in the face, and then it's gone. And in a, in, in a split second, you have this gun pointed at you or pointed at your face. And then the gun fires, you should be dead. But then in the next split second, you're fine. Nothing's happened. And that was this sort of edge moment that I wanted to convey. And I called both of these people afterwards, both Tom and Paul. I, I called them, told them that it was me and asked them if it worked. And they both told me that it didn't. So there it is. Well, and it's so psychologically provocative for so many reasons. But even just hearing about it, it makes you wonder, like, what you do. Like, I don't know what I would do. Like, most of us don't know until we're confronted with that situation. That's a part of what keeps that performance relevant. That it still has, it, it raises questions like that. And, that. and that's the point of doing work like this. I also think the image of the mask is something that can't yes. be understated. That is one of the most terrifying Cause images. Because it's, it's, it is still human. It's not like a, a stocking over a face. It, it has this, this neutral um, coldness to it that's so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Where did the influence and inspiration for your performance pieces come from? Was it, was it things you were seeing at Cal arts? Was it, I mean, it seems like the actionist must've been an inspiration for you early on. Rudolf Schwarzkogler was an inspiration before I got to Cal arts. When I got to Cal arts, one of the really eye opening moments was to see uh, Bruce Nauman's exhibition at LA County. It was a way of thinking about art that really inspired me. Uh, and every one of his uh, installations at that time was uh, playing with perception and ultimately with, with consciousness and, and 
exploring consciousness became the the sort of driving force for everything that I've done ever since then. It was a major turning point for me to see that and and then uh, just to to realize that that at least um, for me that um, that's what art speaks to is a kind of exploring of what it is to to be conscious what it is to be not just human but to be conscious what consciousness is and art from that moment art became a kind of tool vehicle to explore that and it's that's what it is now you know we mentioned that tom rashan is one of the people who was a part of the scare performance right having a a gun pulled on him uh tom also i mean probably known for you know from LAFMS, Los Angeles Free Music Society, of which you're affiliated sort of starting in the, the late 70s. When did you decide to start making sound pieces uh, or making those more available in lieu of the performance pieces? At a certain point, I started thinking about what would happen if I ever went blind. And I thought um, everything that I've been studying, color, everything is all about being able to see. If I go blind, then I would not have any way of making a kind of creative expression or exploring. So I started exploring sound, started using sound. And a big part of your sound is shortwave radio. Tell us about your relationship with shortwave radio. Shortwave was introduced to me by my oldest, oldest friend, uh, his name is Gary Joe Gardenhire. He's a he's a uh, he's an artist. Now lives in Italy as well. Uh, he and I went to high school together, and and one uh, in one visit, he showed me this shortwave radio that he'd gotten. At that time, I was listening to friends who were making music with the first analog synthesizers. And they all had the same kind of sound. I was really frustrated with that. And and I didn't like the idea of practicing an instrument. I hated the idea of having to practice in order to play an acoustic instrument. So I thought shortwave is a perfect instrument. You can't practice it. It's always different. You find things that are just out in the ether. It changes constantly from one moment to the next. So it's completely unpredictable. And for me, it's just, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And the sounds that are created by the shortwave radio had no emotional baggage that came with them. Like, for example, when you see a romantic movie, the, the scenes that are romantic, you have a piano going, a solo piano going. Sad scenes have a violin. These cliches of of these instruments, I hated that. I wanted something that didn't have any of that kind of emotional uh, uh, detritus connected to it. So shortwave was perfect for that too. And then working with shortwave as a kind of a music source and mixing it 
I began to realize pretty quickly that these sounds were pulling out emotional responses from me as a listener. And then I could really, when I could pay attention to each one of these sounds and what it was doing to me emotionally as a listener, I could make a mix and these sounds were mixed according to the emotional response that I was I was getting from listening to them. Yeah, it took months of staying up all night listening to the short, to shortwave all mm -hmm. night every night for like liters of coffee. <laughs> Uh, it was, yeah, not and recommended. You, and one, just the the range and depth that you've pulled from shortwave radio mm. throughout so many different recordings and releases, it, it feels almost endless, the possibilities. Yeah, yeah, yes. And as William Burroughs liked to say, any number can play. So it's a tool. Go wild with the tool, please. You did stage a performance, an acoustic performance of a shortwave radio piece, if I'm getting this correct, and that being Phantom Broadcast. Lots of them, yeah. Phantom Broadcast was one of them. And so how did you find translating the shortwave radio to a performance with instruments? And what were the challenges and what were the rewards? It was an interesting process. It worked differently from what I thought it would be. And uh, I really liked playing with these instruments. I also liked playing with the expectations that these instruments sort of have with them because the people who were playing these instruments could play them in ways that I'd never heard before. So like, using their abilities to get sounds out of every individual instrument that I that were new to me it was a, a lot of fun well radio seems to have played a, a heavy part in your history and in what you do I mean we, we talk about close radio right with yeah, as you and Paul McCarthy and mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is that that was was allowing people to sort of perform on the air and and work in sound more than like a, a DJ kind of, you know, normal rate, what we think of as a radio show. Absolutely. The idea of, was to give complete control of the radio station to people who had never had it before, especially to people who had never had the experience of being able to directly contact 20,000 people at any one moment. Paul did one where, where he just was at a payphone was was stopping people on the street and handing the phone to these people on the street and, and asking them to talk and they're talking to 20,000 people <laughs> there were all kinds of experiments that were done with that uh with that situation but the idea was to to sort of hand this uh, hand control of this mass communication tool to people who had who would never even imagined having it before. And when you moved to Tokyo, you also did pirate radio shows, right? Uh, radio Code. Yes, yes, and 
when I went to Japan, one of the things that was really fascinating to me was something called Mini FM, started by uh, an instructor at the, in Tokyo. Uh, he had a group of, of, of participants in his course that started a, a pirate radio station called Radio Home Run. There, um, his uh, Kogawa's thing was Mini FM. He was talking about radio transmitters that were legal, FM transmitters that were legal, that would uh, transmit in stereo for a range of something like 500 meters. He also showed us that if it's uh, if you do a, a tiny little manipulation to the circuit board of this, you can increase the range. You can double the range. So it goes from 500 meters to one kilometer. I found a way to increase the range of the radio to seven kilometers, which was really, really illegal, but it was so much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I worked, I, uh, worked with that and then, uh, I wanted to take that transmitter to situations, uh, a normal radio, uh, equipment, transmission equipment couldn't go. My stuff packed in a briefcase and I could carry it pretty much wherever I could get, uh, I could get, uh, connected to the current, mm. electric current. The idea of doing pirate radio and broadcasting on a frequency that wasn't being used by other stations, this was important, that to offer something that was on a frequency that, that was not interrupting some another broadcast. In any case, with this portable equipment, I could go to different places where something was happening and broadcast it live. And the, the range of the transmitter that I had meant that I could contact other uh, pirate radio operators mm -hmm. that would tune into that same frequency so that the, the signal could go not just... Um, to the range that I could, my transmitter covered, but also to other transmitters and other parts of the city. So a relay system of independent pirate radio yeah. transmitters. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That um, KPFK didn't offer anything even close to that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Working with pilot radio in Tokyo was very free in that sense. And but you also uh, would transmit on frequencies used by other stations after they would be finished with their their broadcast. Yes, that was television. Oh, television broadcast. Okay. Yes, that was television. I had, I I waited until the national uh, TV broadcast of a given day had finished it. They usually finished around midnight. So I would set up my equipment and start broadcasting about 30 minutes after they went off the air. There was a system in Tokyo that 
made it possible to locate a, a stray transmitter. And there's a story behind that. Um, there was a uh, there was a political group called the Chukakaha, the middle core faction of the Red Army, that uh, in 1976 interrupted the noon news broadcast on NHK, which was the national Japanese national network, and they broadcasted a, a manifesto. As when that happened. The Japanese equivalent of the FCC, Denpakanti Kyoku, but set up a, a, a network of sensors that could pick up the signal of a stray transmitter and and triangulate it within two or three kilometers and send that send the location of that transmitter to the police. So that it, the conventional wisdom was that it would take the police about 30 minutes to get organized enough with the equipment that they needed to, they needed to prove, in order to make a case, they needed to prove that the transmitter that they were after was operating one meter away from their detector. So they had to actually get to the place with this equipment. And they, the conventional wisdom was that it took about 30 minutes to do that. So I would broadcast for 12. And then that's a great idea. And what were you broadcasting? Things that could not be seen on, on national television. Schwarzkogler's early performances with uh, Heinz, uh, Heinz Chibulka wrapped in gauze on the cots. Um, they were a major influence of, uh, that uh, sort of inspired me to even become an artist, to think like that. And then uh, uh, a film that uh, I did the soundtrack to, I re, I, uh, reworked a documentary of uh, Tokyo riots in 1976, and I made a, a soundtrack to that. That was broadcast. There was a group called Onansi in French that did a live broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, and then, oh, yes, then there was my favorite one, which was... Uh, uh, you probably know what a love hotel is. Yes. yes. In Japan, there. Okay. In Japan, there are love hotels, and in the love hotels, there are different rooms set up with different sort of themes. And one of the themes of this one hotel was a, a TV and a camera that showed the the couple that were using this room uh, to themselves on the screen on, on the on the TV screen so um, they could see themselves and they could see themselves on the screen there was a couple that had some of the most boring saddest sex I'd ever seen and I I, I cut that out but after the after that was over, they started sort of playing with this, uh, with this 
with the system. They started playing with mm. watching themselves on the screen. And that was beautiful. I thought this should be seen. This is, this is great. This should, this should be seen. This kind of innocence of the, like, like picking their nose and picking their feet, playing with their feet in front of the screen, just doing these really silly things. I thought this was great. This, this needs to be seen. So I broadcast that one. It's called Love Hotel Surveillance. I, I like the wholesome portions of the Love Hotel, the human times. <laughs> the side of it that's sort of discounted or played down is unimportant, but I think the opposite is true. I think that's where the magic really is, to be in this, in this kind of situation with somebody and, and being able to play with, like, play together with someone just freely like this. I thought that was beautiful. A friend of mine uh, was in Japan a few years ago and brought me back audio cassettes uh, recorded in sex hotels. And uh, they're fairly mundane sounding <laughs> things, too, as, like, as you describe, like sad, boring sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No imagination. What can you say? So, yeah. Well, that's why they went for a change of scenery. They're hoping to, like, you know, get some inspo. Well, they exist because there is no privacy in Japan. And very often families live together. Any couple would live with their relatives and and with their children. And and there's just no way to get a space to themselves. So they go off and they and they have these moments in these in these love hotels really provide a service there. What year did you get to Japan? I arrived in Tokyo on uh, August 6, 1982. Oh, wow. Okay. And so were you already in contact with with some of the Japanese artists? Or was it when you got there that you started meeting people like Makawa or like Hijo Kaiden and that whole crew? There is a man who is a very, very close friend whose name's uh, Takuya Sakabuchi, who took it upon himself to send uh, records of experimental music going on in Japan to uh, people in the United States, LAFMS, and to send LAFMS records to these peoples. He was a kind of connector between these two uh, worlds of, of music. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. He's amazing. And he's interested in his university research was on higher nervous energy, which is the synapses in the brain. He's studying how the synapses in the brain work. In particular, at the time we met, he was working on the locus serious neuron, studying how that works. And, and he uh, he saw that this experimental music going on in Japan and experimental music going on by people uh, who were uh, working under the LAFMS sort of umbrella were not following any rules of music at all, but they were, but we were all making music. So he was, he was fascinated by our individual efforts 
and he he made it a point to connect us in order to just see what would happen between us. Yeah, amazing man, really, really amazing man. That's so cool. So you were already familiar with with some of those people by the time you got to Japan. I was familiar with him. Okay. And I was familiar with the with the records that he had sent. And I made a list of people that I wanted to contact. Uh, Few was one of them. Heino was one of them. And then when I got there, I met all of these other people who were uh, who were working in this same genre. Jojo and and uh, Mikawa, uh, Junko, her voice, her amazing voice. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I heard her. She came to Bologna and did a solo performance where she screamed for forty-five minutes without losing her voice. I don't know how she did it. So that early time there just must have been really exciting. The energy of meeting all these people and just starting to work with those people. Cause a lot of those would do some of the radio stuff with you, right? That Shay Shizu, Makawa, Haino, didn't they, they were participated in that stuff with you. Yes. Right. So that must just, that, that just energy must've been really everyone kind of feeding off each other. And it, it must've been a really cool time. It was very diverse that you mentioned too. She's the, um, her entire way of, of making music, of of just being, is so radically different from Hijokaidan, oh, yeah. from, Mikawa, from from everybody else, and and Hijokaidan was again at that time different from everybody else around them, and Mikawa, of course, just a, a powerhouse in himself. Oh yeah. How did you decide on Japan when leaving Los Angeles? Well, Los Angeles was pretty much closed to me at that point. I didn't have a job. I was running out of money very, very quickly. Uh, I had no idea what I would do. Then suddenly I got a, a, a check in the mail. I had quit the RTD. I quit driving the bus. And it was called RTD at the time. In any case, I had I had quit driving a bus. I didn't have a job, and suddenly I got this check in the mail that was enough to buy a return ticket from L.A. to Tokyo. And I thought, well, I can starve, but if I do, I at least want to go and meet Tuck. Takuya Sakaguchi, this this guy who wrote uh, a letter, made contact, and was one of the, one of two or three people, even now, who wrote back and understood the first record that I made in the way that I intended it. So I I had to meet him. I just had to go and meet him. And I thought, okay, this is a chance. This check in the mail is a chance to go and meet him and. If my life is over after that, I can, I'm, I'm fine with that. So I took this money, I bought the ticket, and I went to meet him. And all of these other things happened. In the meantime, one of the things that uh, happened while I was there 
was that I I could I found out that I could make a pretty good living teaching English, and it uh, it they were right. It 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 made enough money to live comfortably, pretty comfortably. I'm I, I'm I have a very frugal existence, but I don't need a lot, so it didn't. Um, it was enough. Mm-hmm. It it earned me enough, and it got me into situations and chances to meet people I would never have met otherwise. So, uh, yeah, I went there and started doing that. And as soon as I found out that it was possible to do that, I came back to the United States, like packed up everything that I could, sold what I couldn't, and moved everything to Tokyo. Well, you weren't just teaching English when you moved to Japan, though, right? You also started working in writing and producing pornographic films. Not producing, writing and directing and acting in them, yes. How did that come about? Nakagawa Noriyuki was the director of a company called Kuki, which produces adult video. He also started a a sort of side project called B Sellers that was about publishing controversial art projects. And he was really keen to produce a cassette book of their recording of Blind Date. And that's the Pleasure Escape release, correct? That's it was mm-hmm. called Pleasure Escape. And I, I was very skeptical. I had seen this particular performance treated to so much abuse and distortion from what I had intended that I was I was really hesitant to do it. And I said, if you if 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 you want to do it, I want to control every detail of mm-hmm. I, I want to know where it goes. I want to know who's involved. I want to have full control over the entire package, everything that goes into it. He said, yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, he said yes to everything. So he produced it. I was really happy with it. And it was in the it was in Barnes and Noble of Japan. Wow. It was, wow. It was, yeah, among the art books. And I thought, okay, he, he did it. He did, he did what he said he would do. He did everything he said he would do. He proposed this idea of, of producing or of directing erotic videos. And I, I asked him, why me? He said, I'm curious to see what you do. So I did. I directed five of them. And it was it was another revelation. It was, it was really, really fun. Well, tell us about that process. Well, for one thing, he made it very clear and, and he strictly separated the, the creative process of making, of, of writing a script, of deciding like, what the story would be. There had to be a story. Because of the censors, uh, in the Japanese censors, there had to be a, a basic story. Mm. He would choose the actors 
he would choose the, he would take the story, he would choose the locations, he would choose the crew. And then once the video was recorded, then I would edit it together with, by numbers, and then take those numbers to a very, to the studio that NHK uses to produce their, their programming. So the state of the art kind of uh, equipment that they were using to produce the video quality was the best. The distribution, all of that stuff, we kept very separate from any of this creative process. Of course, Yakuza were involved, but they were not involved with any of the people that I met, or I never met anybody who was involved Mm -hmm. directly with Yakuza. Also, because uh, Japan's uh, censorship rules make it necessary to mask male genitals and penetration, it meant that penetration was actually not necessary. So that, uh, that encouraged people to get on camera who would otherwise never have mm-hmm. dared to get on the camera get in front of a camera and do this. Some really, really interesting people. There were, one of the uh, one of the actors was a race car driver who had track expenses, who had who had maintenance on the car, who had uh, 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 she she had a staff, a mechanic, uh, entry fees for the races, all of these expenses. She would deal with these expenses. She was the driver. She was she would ex- deal with these expenses by doing a weekend video for Kuki. So in one weekend, she would make a stack of money, all the money that she needed for the year to cover all of these other expenses. There was a guy who was a favorite actor, one of my one of my favorite male actors was a guy who was in his 50s at the time who was an uh, anime artist. He was over, overweight, uh, extremely shy. Uh, overweight is really rare for Japanese uh, Japanese men mm-hmm. and he he was everything that was just counter to the cliche of a, of a male porno star and the thing that made him really interesting for me was that he could not get an erection unless he was watching uncensored pornography on a TV screen irony <laughs> he would be with an actor together with an actor she would be doing things to encourage him and nothing would work unless he was watching for off off camera unless he was unless off camera he was watching an image of uh uncensored pornography on this on the on this cathode ray screen is amazing. <laughs> a 20th century human being male. Wow. Yeah. 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 
And you did these works and you soundtracked these films under the name John C. Yes. Um, Nakagawa-san suggested that I use a pseudonym to uh, separate out, uh, to separate this activity from uh, art activity. So I did that, but I, um, the reason why I finally said yes was uh, because I wanted to take these products, uh, go to my local uh, video rental store. At, at the time, there were video rental stores in every neighborhood. Go to one of these stores rent the video that I had made for Kuki and then uh, and then basically uh, re-edit it, cut it up. And this is how things like Prayer and, and Phantom and your VHS releases were put together, yes? Exactly. Yeah. The saddest thing, well, Prayer was done directly with the material that the actors had made before they uh, uh, before they made a final edit, they gave me their raw footage to work with. And uh, yeah, Phantom was another one. Uh, in Phantom, there's a lot of uh, Super 8 images simply because the technology of VHS to VHS transfers meant that 70% of the signal would be lost every time it was transferred to another tape. So by the time I got to the final edit, uh, something that was in full color in the original was black and white and barely visible. And it, it was, it, it was mm -hmm. heartbreaking. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I ended up using a lot of, of uh, Super 8 films transferred to, uh, transferred to video. Well, we talked about sort of why or how you chose Japan, but the, the sort of reason, and you mentioned it before, and, and of course, Blind Date being released as part of Pleasure Escape and you leaving Los Angeles is sort of the, the lore I know of that is that you were... Uh, sort of drummed out of Los Angeles or, you know, d doing blind date caused a lot of ill will towards you in, in the States and in Los Angeles specifically. Yes. Basically um, uh, there was, there was no reason to stay in the United States in Los Angeles. People that I cared about wouldn't talk to me, tried to send me to prison were incredibly hostile. And in Japan, People were welcoming, were very interested in hearing why Blind Date was done. And that was the whole point of doing it, was to start this discussion. So in, in Tokyo, I was welcomed, whereas in L.A., I was, in LA I was shunned. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, 
and on Twitter at Noise Extra with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to Noise.